0: Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist, oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode this week on plenary session we have jacob russell jacob russell is from rutgers university he's in the school of law and he is one of the most thoughtful commenters on expertise and misinformation during the pandemic you won't want to miss this one you know normally every week you hear me say if you're a fan of this show go support us on patreon you get access to the slides i got something new to say this time i think the good old days are over. We're living in a unique time where people are very happy to extinguish voices and ideas that they deem unfit for consumption. And so I personally have gone on Patreon. I've supported a number of people who I listen to, the podcasts that I love. And I'm encouraging you to do the same. The only way we can combat this growing force of illiberalism is to support with our dollar bills podcast we enjoy. So that's my plug. All right, I'm back in Plenary Session, joined by Professor Jacob Russell from Rutgers Law. Jacob Russell is a, is a second-time participant on Plenary Session. Um, some astute listeners of Plenary Session noticed that, that I got excited when I talked to Jacob Russell. When I get excited, I make a classic moderator mistake, which is I don't let the guests talk. But they were good to inform me of my mistake, so we're going to make up for it. And in addition to that, we're going to talk about some new material because a lot has happened. Professor Russell, it's a pleasure to have you back.
1: Thanks. It sounds like a dubious distinction to be back a second time, but I'll take it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You never know what will happen to you just for being on this podcast. So why don't you start by telling us. Now, what's the difference between information that I don't like, that I don't agree with, and disinformation? Because as far as I can tell, there's not much of a difference between those three online
1: yeah, no, I think you're you're putting your uh, your finger on on a question that I think is a lot harder. I, th- I think people don't take that question seriously enough. I think it's easy to say in the abstract look, we've got a problem in society with too much misinformation. We've got a lot of fake news. I think there's sort of a genuine um, uh, kind of good faith uh, you know panic about the level um of sort of complete disinformation that's infected our political system. And so we can talk about whether, first of all, whether that claim is even true. I mean, I think that's a thing that a lot of people believe in good faith and there's, I think, debate about how true it is. But even if you've decided it's true, then you face this question of, well, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a much harder problem than people give credit to. And I, it's arguably such a hard problem um, you know, that it almost, it, it, the, the problem could be so hard to solve that it would caution against almost any solution to it, exactly yeah. because of the problem of um, of labeling, you know, of, of where you draw that line. I mean, I think there are some really easy cases. There are some things where it's clear that someone, right, a, a Russian bot spewing misinformation about the number of deaths due to COVID or about the IFR or whatever, where it's just, it's clearly it's clearly a bad actor with information that is way outside the norm. Sure, everyone, there's, you know, very few people are going to defend that. Um, but that's not the case that we're usually dealing with. So the, the case that we're usually dealing with is, you know, I think comes closer to that line between, you know, is this someone who I profoundly disagree with so much that I even genuinely think their ideas are dangerous, but it doesn't necessarily rise to the level of kind of, you know, absolute disinformation that has no real basis in in sort of uh, uh, free speech. And I think, you know, people I've, I've asked this to people a lot and I, I rarely get a sort of satisfying, mm-hmm. um, you know, Tangible answer of how you would draw that line, and you think mm-hmm. about—I mean—a a funny recent example that that um, I've been—you know—you know—people say, "Well, you go with what the public health agencies say." But you think about the instances where the CDC and the WHO. So forget even the question of whether they're always right, right? No, a public no, no. health agency can be
0: wrong. Just whether but they let's agree. Let's say we accept
1: yeah. that they're right. Mm-hmm. The CDC and the WHO have different views on certain things, right? The the CDC age for mask wearing for children is two. The WHO says essentially there are almost no circumstances or there are very few circumstances that would warrant it under five and caution against mask usage under five, which one is like, if you're just going to use the standard, it will go, right? If you're the Facebook fact checker and you say, I'm just going to defer to the public health agencies, how do you decide, right? The WHO, I think still, I haven't double checked this, but I as of at least recently on their page of COVID myths, they actually say that you shouldn't, they actively urge against wearing masks during exercise, the CDC uh-huh. Right. Has, a, has a different viewpoint. So yes. right. So which one do you go with if you're just going with the sort of, oh, we're not going to get in the, in the middle of here. We're just going to defer to public health agencies. So this is a really, I mean, it's such a challenging question that people don't take seriously.
0: Jacob Russell, I just checked on that because I was complaining about it recently um, because the WHO says not to wear masks when you exercise, um, but the average person on the street, they say to wear them. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and I'll put my cards on the table. Um, there is not a shred of plausible evidence that they will do anything. When you go for a long run in the San Francisco sea breeze, uh, whether you wear it or don't wear it, that's not the place that it's it's going to get the mileage out of that mask. Um, but it's become a religion. And when where, where religion goes, so too goes disinformation and claims of disinformation. Um, I want to talk about it a little bit more. Um, you know, when I look at Twitter, um, uh, I get told often that I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm somebody who has put out disinformation, but then I saw this person use that word over and over again (laughs) to the point where I was like, that person's got no credibility at all. Um, it's a problem. Um, let me talk about something related to that. See what you think about this. Um, as you know, I had, um, Satan himself, John Uniti, is back on this podcast for part two. We met in a park in Menlo Park, and we recorded it face-to-face as, as dialogue once occurred. Um, and, and there were some people, like real people, not nameless, faceless but trolls, but actual journalists, academics, who said, without listening to the podcast, that it was wrong for me to give him a, quote, platform. And by the way, in case you're wondering what that platform is, that's that's plenary session.
1: <laughs> as if as we'll if be this, saying the same about us in a few minutes. So.
0: <laughs> as if this 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 shitty podcast is like some magical. It's like <laughs> like being on fucking 60 minutes. Get the hell out of here. It's not a platform. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a tiny hobbyist, a tiny hobbyist um, podcast with a niche following. Um, that's one two. no one's supposed to talk to this guy. We gotta put, we gotta send him to Elba. Um, No one's supposed to talk to this guy for the rest of his career. Um, And remind me, what was the transgression? (laughs) What was the transgression? That um, he plugged an IFR estimate that people don't like, but may ultimately be within the range of plausible IFR estimates. Um, I find it crazy. But anyway, so my thought is, you know, it's related. It's related to this giving labels to things that are pejorative that simply mean we disagree or don't like and truncating to with whom you can converse because they have opinions that you don't like. um, It's not a good, it's not a good recipe for, for dialogue, for discourse. Um, What do you think about this? That we're not going to interact with people who are bad.
1: Yeah, no, and as soon I think as as we talked about before, the you know, just, uh, you know, that was sort of the moment back and actually back when you wrote your op-ed, at, you know, April or March, sort of de- defending his, uh, you know, his op-ed, which has been you know badly taken out of context, I think, but could, that's a sort of separate question. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that sort of got me interested in this because I think you can say, like, let's 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 take sort of the worst case version of the critique of Ioannis for granted. So let's say we think that everything about his work has been completely shoddy and he's been completely wrong, right, we could, you know, there's plenty of arguments against it, but let's say, let's assume that's the case, right, does that rise to the level that someone shouldn't be allowed to either, you know, appear on your podcast or should be marked as misinformation if they, if they're, if they appear, and right, he, he had videos taken down from YouTube, right, should they be uh, as misinformation or should they, you know, not be quoted as much should their op-eds not run? Right, and I, I, you know, it seems to me that even if you took sort of the, even if you thought his science here was shoddy, there's a, there are a lot of things that would caution you against it, right? This is someone who has direct expertise in the relevant field, a long standing career, a long track record, right? A lot of citations to their name, right? Does that mean that we should always defer to them? No, but with that caution against sort of a knee jerk silencing of them, um, right. And then there's the whole debate about what silencing means. Let, let's, talk talk about about, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. It seems to more. me that someone who has that degree of a of, of, of record and that degree of consistency, even if they're making a bad argument has, you know, has some degree of, there needs to be some amount of, of engagement with it. And I, you know, I differentiate between people who say, you know, who just respond, oh, I stopped listening to him in March when he wrote an op-ed that I didn't read that I know I disagreed with. <laughs> right? I think that's not a legitimate that's sort of not in the in the bounds. If you're especially if you're a scientist, right? If you're a casual observer, whatever. But if you're if you're an academic, you should at least <laughs> read the thing you disagree with. So I would differentiate very strongly between that and between people who have raised substantive critiques of, of his work and have written arguments against him and have said, right, the people who every single time he publishes a paper, you know, do a long explanation of why they disagree with it, right? That at least is, or that is engaging with the substance of it. And, you know, it would not be for me, it would be maybe, you know, you can weigh in on who's right or who's wrong, but, but sort of just saying, well, he wrote one piece. It's, it's proves that he's a charlatan. Now, none of his academic career matters at all. We don't need to listen to him. Seems problematic and maybe seems different to me than, you know, he often in conversations will get, will get sort of grouped together with some of the other people who, Early on, made very strong, um, you know, predictions that COVID wasn't going to be a big deal. So the the one that is famous in, in law is Richard Epstein, law okay. professor at Chicago, who said, you know, who was off, who made a very specific prediction, and I think it was five thousand deaths, and, yes. it was, and like, he was like, and really he's a law off. professor, he right. has no relevant expertise, right? He he also, unlike you, know, made a you know actual numerical prediction that turned out to be off the mark, and that's not his domain. I mean, it's not even it's not even like sort of close to his
0: domain <laughs> no, it's not
1: close. and he wasn't speaking on something that in some way implicates law and policy. He was making an epidemiological prediction that he had no qualification to make. And it strikes me that that like, that's the line. That's why, you know, this is such a different case that I I think you know, it's become very, I'm I'm almost afraid to talk about it because I think it's become one of those litmus tests that like you've written them off or you haven't, but it, ah, it, yes. that, that to me strikes me as, a very bizarre and problematic place to begin a conversation when you're talking about someone like him i don't mean that people like him should always be listened to or that you should listen to someone based on their credentials or titles but that i also think with him in particular there's a degree of consistency and i think your your interviews with him have brought this out there's a degree of consistency between what he said and his entire career right that right. one of the things and, and you know you could say maybe this was not communicated in his early stat news um, op-ed but I mean, it was because it was in the title and it was in the first paragraph, it was repeated (laughs) about 10 times, but what he said multiple times was not COVID isn't a big deal, but we need better data in order to make complicated society-wide trade-offs, which is deeply consistent with stuff he has said his whole career. Uh And and that also, I think he is, you know, maybe a little bit of a medical, um, you know, conservative or medical minimalist in a way that I think is consistent across his body of work. And so yeah. questioning the value of a very strong intervention without data is, you know, questioning the value of extended lockdowns without better evidence is no different from questioning, you know, other kinds of interventions that he has successfully questioned in the past. So there's a kind of like track record. I mean, that's what differentiates it to me from sort of like the, the someone like Richard Epstein, who's talking about something he knows nothing about that he has no qualification on that's just him like that doesn't need deference. Right. But someone like Ioannidis, I think at least the responses should be in the form of substantive responses or at least having read the piece before, you know, writing it off.
0: I um I think that one of the things people don't appreciate is that literally one of the themes of his work is exactly what you're putting your finger on, which is he believes that well-intentioned smart human beings are often seduced by the idea that man has tremendous power over his and her future, that mankind, humankind has tremendous control over our fate. And we often do not have that control. Everything from screening, to giving a drug, to giving a pill, to shutting down the world because you think you can contain a virus. He believes that you feel like that will work, but you often are wrong, and that's why you need data. It's a very consistent theme. He's always believed it. He's always going to believe it. A thousand years from now, if an asteroid is hurtling to Earth and somebody says they're going to shoot a rocket into it and blow it up, he's going to say, we should remember there's a chance it won't blow up the way you think, and it's going to come and hit you in the face anyway. I mean, I guarantee you that's what he's going to say. The second thing I'll say is if there was a rule in science that every time you said something that didn't happen, you're gonna never talk to that person again. Well, you can start with Francis Collins and you can go down the list of all the power players because they all made big promises that did not come true, my friend. They did not come true. Francis Collins said that by the year, I think it was 2015, if you gave a blood pressure medicine to someone, you're gonna sequence their genome and give them a pill based on their genetic signature. That not only did not happen, it's never gonna, it's not gonna happen. (laughs) It was proven wrong. Um, Telling tall tales, that's 50% of being a scientist. In Yonidi's case, I actually think he didn't do that. If anything, he did the opposite, Um, but he really talked about uncertainty more than anything. But anyway, um, my question to you.
1: Right, well, and I think that's become a big problem is that, that, you know, this sort of evaluating, evaluating everything based on kind of hindsight bias, and in particular on cherry picking one, right? This person made one good prediction and therefore should totally defer to them this person made one bad prediction and we should write them off i mean it's not you know there are ways i think it is true that there should be some amount of calibration of right we should figure out you know are people systematically right or wrong there's a whole study of expert of, of expert predictions that i think you know has a value but in a in the context of sort of a novel public policy issue in the context of the pandemic really what you want is a a range of opinions and what you wanna be evaluating them on is not were they right later on, but it's what did they bring to the table at the time with the knowledge that they had? So did they bring sort of an appropriate level of certainty or doubt? So one of the differences I think between, um, right, if you read the UNITA's Stat News piece, right, there's an incredible range and and you could argue that he emphasized the the kind of good part of it too much, but he puts a very wide range in there. So he, he acknowledges an immense amount of uncertainty and you contrast that with someone like Epstein who had zero, you know, whose error bound was zero, you know, he knew it would be exactly 5,000 deaths, right? Yeah, so have yeah, people, yeah. have people acknowledge sort of what, what, what expertise they personally are bringing to bear? Is it something within their domain that they have some particular way of, of contributing? Have they framed the issue in some way that's helpful? Have they acknowledged sort of the counter arguments? Have they, you know, have they brought the right level of humility? Have they calibrated their uncertainty appropriately? I would much rather an expert, who had calibrated their level of uncertainty quite well and said, "I'm I'm very uncertain about this," than someone who happened to you know uh, pick some random point in the middle and then later turns out to be correct, right? Uh, probably that's uh-huh. the less good. You know, they probably got lucky. You actually want someone who, right? I, I think across all kinds of fields of academic expertise, like the calibration of your level of uncertainty is almost as important as the sort of middle point of that um, of of that
0: estimate. Oh, there's a lot of people who are going to love you. Um, this is literally what um, people say. Don't be a point estimologist. Be a confidence interval person. Talk about the range of plausible effects. Don't focus on one number. It's almost surely the case. It's not that one number. Um, it, it, but there's some range of uncertainty. Um, I want to talk to you about about something near and dear to my heart, myself. Which is, <laughs> which is what happened to me. What happened to me? So... So, you know, you said something that was that caught my attention. You talked about reading, reading what he wrote and using your own judgment to decide what he said. You see, that's an unusual skill set in the modern world. We don't want to read anything, especially if it's more than one hundred and twenty eight characters or two fifty six, whatever the hell it is. We want someone to tell you what you ought to think about something. That's where we are. That's the new academy. Um, so I like to read things to myself. I like to read them. I like to think about them. I'm old fashioned that way. Um, you know, maybe I was I was meant to be born in a different era, but I'm stuck in this one um, where, you know, that's not a commodity. Uh, I read the vaccine studies. I read them. I read them closely. I looked through all the preprints, all the data. Um, I heard people talking about 95% effective. That's, of course, the relative risk reduction. I was interested in a different statistic, which was if you were vaccinated, completed both doses and you went 10 days asymptomatic, what is the subsequent probability between that period of time, roughly day 40 and day the final day of the study, day 180, day 200, and your chance of developing SARS-CoV-2? Because of course it takes a while for the vaccine to kick in. And some of the people who present in the first 10 days, they caught it before they enrolled in the damn trial. Okay, so I wanna know what when it kicks in and you feel fine, What's the subsequent probability of infection? I calculated it for both trials. It was 99.95, no COVID, 99.92, no COVID. I looked at data on the nasal swabs in Moderna. There's a huge reduction in in PCR positivity, which doesn't mean you're infectious. It just means you can find nucleotides, okay? It's a big reduction. The absolute risk was one in a thousand PCR positivity. I think it's gonna diminish over time. Um, We also know a lot of things about vaccination. Most vaccines, all but one to my knowledge, Slow the spread of a disease. This is a disease that is in part spread by people who are blowing viral load, high viral load. They're spreading it. Um, symptomatic people spread it. When you cut those two out of the equation, you're going to slow the spread. Um, and then the last thing is that I, I know a lot about um, what happens to antibody response in the nasal mucosa. Okay, I put it all together. I read this stuff. Early in January, I came out guns blazing. After you get vaccinated, you, it's over. There's none of this... We're not going to meet up. We're going to meet up. You hug your grandma. If two people are vaccinated, we're going to have dinner. Six people are vaccinated, we have a dinner party. If we're vaccinated and we're having lunch at work, we're going to have lunch at work. Um, uh, people, I even went so far as to say the mask. You know, the mask. What's the, what's the benefit of the mask? I think the Danish mask study shows it does not have a fifty percent or more reduction. Does it have a five percent sure? But a 5%, when you take an absolute baseline risk and push it into the ground with a vaccine, that marginal benefit is is, is super marginal. And if you had John's philosophy and a little bit of my philosophy, you know that things people do with very tiny effect sizes often vanish in real world, you know, the the vagaries of the real world. Okay, so I came out guns blazing. I wrote my little op-ed. I tweeted about it. One of the classic rebuttals is... um, we don't know the risk is zero. Okay, of course, yeah, we don't know it's zero. In fact, it's probably not zero. It's never gonna be zero. There's guaranteed to be transmission. We don't know it's zero. The same person who told me, we don't know it's zero, they were on Twitter advising pregnant women, it's okay to get vaccinated. My point is, we don't know it's okay. There's an ongoing Pfizer trial to answer that question, proving Pfizer, they don't know. So the only time you're saying we don't know is we don't know you can hug your grandma. We do know it's safe for a pregnant woman to be vaccinated. That's actually quite different than our historical. I'm going to have an op-ed on this coming out tomorrow. Um, anyway, my point to you, I got, I got a lot of pushback, a lot of it veered into, you know, personal, stupid. I mean, it's very uncalled for. Um, I have a hypothesis. Here's my hypothesis. My hypothesis is um, some people are pushing back just in a reflexive tribal way. They have not read the studies themselves. They have not thought about the issue themselves. Some of these people may even lack the tools to think about these issues because they're not in the business of reading data and making up their own mind. Their whole career is going what, uh, doing what other people tell them and following the herd. And I hear this word people use, contrarian. Um, I, I think I, I, I don't like that word because sometimes it is the contrarian maybe opposed to a lot of people but in that huge group of people there may only be one person who actually thought about the damn thing themselves and the rest of the people just follow that one person because it's conservative it's tribal those sorts of things um okay so my question to you if it's a question or not or it's a talking point um i think i think what i'm trying to get at is this question of um even when somebody's a doctor even when somebody's a public health expert there is a, 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 even if you're a lawyer or whatever not every single actor in any space is a is somebody who independently reaches decisions themselves in fact i believe that the majority of actors in any space from the academy to the street the majority of actors are taking their decisions on the majority of choices from what other people do very few people make their own mind up and the trouble is if you are such a person you will inevitably go against the grain on some issue And if we have this view that all the people who defy the grain are bad people, um, you know, you're really going to stifle a lot of thinking and dialogue. Okay, thoughts.
1: So I really like the way you put that towards the end. I mean, I think there is, you know, I I think this is a a general problem. And clearly, neither of us expects everyone to have read every single thing. All like, you know, no one could do that. But I think there is a temptation in especially in academia today to sort of you adopt a kind of tribal mentality and I, you know I do this too there are there are political convictions I hold and so I know who my people are and I'm content with the fact that either they've read the thing that I'm being asked to react to or that I think they've read it because they've you know they've already decided what outcome they want from it and then if someone asks me oh what does this paper I say well you know I haven't read it because I know I disagree with it and I think that's a really you know I that's a, a, a really problematic I mean it's it's it you know, it's fine in some contexts, right, because we can't read everything. But when you're, say, giving a quote to the press, or the new version of that is Twitter, where everyone is trying to, you know, be on Twitter to influence people and hopefully to get the press to listen to them, I think you have a much stronger ethical obligation, especially as an academic, to have read the thing that you're going to be talking about, to not just take the call from the reporter, because you say, hey, this is sort of, this is vaguely in my wheelhouse, and I know I know what the right answer should be because I have a political or ideological conviction here, and so I will use whatever questions they have to sort of put that out. And I think that's, you know, I think that always happened a little bit with being quoted, and we're all a little bit guilty of it. But I think Twitter has accelerated the rate at which people can do that and their ability to sort of find a herd to be consistent with, and uh, you know, to to kind of to and. And I think it's it's destructive in two senses. It's destructive both because it means people are kind of using their expertise to opine on something that they don't actually know anything about. They're saying, I'm an expert, even though I haven't read X, Y, Z, and I, I know this is true or not true. But I also think it's hollowing out within academia, kind of openness and curiosity and skepticism and these kind of basic values and turning them into, yeah, exactly as you say, it's like to have those values makes you the fringe contrarian. Like, no it shouldn't like it should be a basic tenet of academic life that we are open and curious and skeptical and i think about conversations i've had with colleagues right you know i am i am like the last person to ever be an originalist political like both politically and intellectually it is not a a position that that appeals to me for all sorts of reasons you some mean of a which
0: Scalia, are you know, some
1: of which are exactly right okay. and so that is that is not at all appealing to me but i love reading Mm-hmm. Originalist. I love understanding a Scalia' opinion. I, I, you know, it's it's one of the interesting things you do in law school is to understand his arguments. And I really, you know, I now sort of seek out what is the best argument for originalism, not because I plan on becoming an originalist or because I, you know, want to switch my political convictions, but because to me, the whole point of our profession is that it affords us both the opportunity and the responsibility to be curious about those kinds of arguments. I feel like the number of people who I now talk to who say some, some form of, well, I don't need to know what the best argument is because I know I disagree with that. And I think it's such a weird, a a weird place that we've gotten to. And I, I, you know, I don't know how you get out of it, but I think the more issues become politicized, the more they become binary, the more it's like, right. You, you know, you Mm -hmm. like masks because you're, a good, a good person and you don't like masks or you're about, you like that, you you know, you are skeptical of X, Y, Z, you're skeptical where school closures are, I think the ideal example of this, because that's one where we've actually seen, I think uh, a flip-flop and where the, the oh, people yeah. who were sort of in the left, but a year ago were already saying, or you know, a little less than a year, but like by last summer, we're already saying, look, there's pretty good data here. We're told that they were, you know, Murderers and child killers and and Trump Trump supporters and yep. positively Trumpian and their yep. arguments and of course the consensus has has changed and you know what maybe this is a, a question for you but like part of the question is what what changed that consensus but the answer that gets given a lot as well there's you know the science change it mm-hmm. seems to me that we accumulated more science but there was pretty good evidence yes. quite a bit earlier and what really changed I I think and I'd be curious if you think it's otherwise is that. I think Fauci kind of gave his blessing at some point to the idea publicly, and then then it became okay for people who were on the fence, who had started to have that I- idea to say it, right? It made it acceptable. And I don't mean that as a critique no. of Dr. Fauci, but that I think no. there's this way in which when we make certain people into heroes and other people into villains, there's no way to have a dialogue until right the hero blesses the idea, and then all the people who already sort of we're on the fence, or we're already starting to think. And then feel like they can say, "Look, now I've you know now now I can come out and agree with this the standpoint." It's not so much that the science changed, but that the that the, the the sort of window of what was acceptable to express, I think, expanded rapidly in the last three months.
0: I agree. So, I mean, I think you're you're really onto something. Um, I would say that also, three weeks ago, when I said my thing about vaccines. I literally somebody called it disinformation now this week Fauci said it, Fauci right. yeah, said right. it now yeah. is everybody's doing it everyone's doing it so um but had I not gone as hard as I went initially I think it would have been harder for you know a week after my article Julia Marcus's article came out of the Atlantic she's a better writer than me she's more um I think she's skilled at threading a needle on this issue she did it very gracefully but I had already absorbed a lot of the anger so that there was a window for her to kind of push the narrative a little bit further. Then Monica Gandhi comes, then Fauci comes, and now it's over, you know. I this, the tide is tipped. Same with school openings. Emily Oster, she took a lot of blows when because she pushed it when people weren't pushing it. I right. started pushing it in September, early, right. but I'm not as I'm probably one step behind her. But it took me a while to learn. I mean, I literally had to read a lot about schools. I didn't know what do, what the, you know, what do I know about schools? But the moment I saw the picture in my own opinion, I reached the conclusion that it was a, a screw up. Um, I pushed it hard. She pushed it hard. A lot of people push it hard. The more people push it hard, I think not only might you persuade other people, but you give permission to people to allow those thoughts to enter their mind. I view a lot of my work in cancer drug policy. It's not very innovative or smart. Don't tell, don't tell the tenure committee that. Don't tell the promotion committee. It gives people permission to admit that some of our drugs are quite marginal. It gives them permission to admit that. And the moment you give them that permission because you go at it hard, then a lot of people who wouldn't be in the space start voicing their opinion and pushing it. So you know, science always needs people who are willing to push it hard. Um, I think John did, uh, he paid a price because I think people were unfair. OK, the, the next thing I want to say before I, I ask your thoughts, um, I think one of the challenges here with social media, and you allude to this with taking interviews you're not really comfortable doing, I think there's a distinction between wanting to be heard and having something to say. And I think something happened when I was growing up. When I was a kid, you know, w- people who taught me, people who taught me undergrad, they taught me things, um, Classmates, people in my generation, there was a guy I went to philosophy class with, you know, he's a, probably one of the most thoughtful philosophy thinkers I know. And he said, I will write something when I have a truly original idea. Um, uh, and, and, and to get a truly original idea, we would work like you would go push yourself in class, read more books, um, practice the art of debate, uh, practice your skills, develop your skills, make yourself better in the hopes that someday you will have something to contribute. Something changed in the era of social media and Twitter and Facebook and posting every time you, know, you scratch your earlobe. People w- moved from wanting to make themselves excellent to wanting other people to think they were excellent. And those are not the same thing. And so instead of trying to do better work, to do re- really challenging and tightly written essays, they just wanted to get credit for you know, some silly thing that gets credit, a meme, a video, uh, uh, some farce. And it's gotten so bad that there are so many people who say they have all the titles in the world. uh, They have very little time they've spent introspectively developing their skill set to think about complex policy trade-offs, yet they want to be heard. They want to be on CNN. They want to be in the thing. And that to me is a dangerous player. For all his faults, John has spent most of his life developing that skill set, You may disagree with how he comes down, but there are, he's very, very good. And some things he's probably the, he's probably the world's best. It's some certain types of data analysis, um, and original thinking around data. There's no one better. He's going to, you know, he'll be back with another 20 papers to prove it. If people think he's lost it, he, he, he hasn't lost it. He has a certain worldview, but there are a lot of people who are not, they, they have, I, I guess, I don't know how to put it other than there's a culture of raising people in this world where people want to be famous and celebrities, they don't want to do the things that that used to entail, like being excellent. Being excellent is an afterthought. Okay, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think, I guess I, the only thing I would wonder, and I don't, I don't know, I think you're right, but I, I can never tell whether it's just wanting to hear yourself heard, or if it's also, and I'm particularly thinking about academics here, you know, is it, is it feeling like you would have this sort of political obligation that, that I think a lot of things have become very partisan and very political mm-hmm. issues, right? I mean, the, the fact that I mean, the, the pandemic is a great symbol of it because it's like sort of remarkable that concepts like herd immunity, like the, the, the thing that a, that a phrase can become so political that you can't even use it to refer to an underlying policy it. <laughs> level you can't even say it without yeah, it being yeah. political but you know that mass became political but but i think that's reflective of a general way in which a lot of ideas that i, I think about a lot of legal scholarship where a lot you know a lot of a lot of concepts have developed very strong partisan identities so i think on top of the like yeah you want to be quoted and you want to be heard or you want to be an influencer but you also have i think a kind of like yeah. a loyalty to your herd or a loyalty to your, to your crew. I think it's some of it. I think, it, you know, it probably is in, you know, in good faith in the sense that you, you think your side is right. I mean, I think my side is right. And like, so you're like out there, like promoting your side. And if that means you've got to cut corners, right. That's the cost of, of playing this, this game. There's sort of no, there's, there's no reward in writing, writing the nuanced piece that takes a long time to write there's no reward for it because no one's going to read it and neither side is going to like you, right? Your, your tribe isn't going to like you because you didn't just support their, whatever their causes. And the other side's not going to like you because you didn't really support them. You said something in the middle. And I think about some of the, the, the um, I won't again name the person we're talking about, uh-huh, but I, I, uh-huh. I think some of your listeners will know who are talking about it, but there was an article about um, one of the more alarmist scientists who uses a fair number of alarm emojis and in, in, uh, in tweets but there was that article of, of people um, uh, discussing whether this was sort of good or bad science communication, and I was struck by the number of scientists who who haven't been like that and you know have been more neutral, but saying, "Look, I'm 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 going to defend that because he's on the right side, and so I don't care whether the 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 you know whether it's exaggerated or whether it's totally accurate because it's getting the message out, and I think that that's sort of feel like I've seen the same thing elsewhere where it's like, you know, I don't care if this work is shot. I don't care if the empirical study I'm citing in this law article is shoddy or not because it supports my view and it gets to the right side. So I think as we sort of politicize ideas, we narrow off the incentives and the opportunity for an academic to be curious and open about it and to write the nuanced thing because writing the nuanced thing, there's no glory in that, right? You're, you're betraying your your side, and it's, you know, no one, no one wants to hear it. So you, and and I think as things politicize very rapidly, I think that has a really corrosive effect on people's ability to do research. I mean, you think about the number of things in COVID where, right, I mean, one, of like, there are a whole bunch of reasons why, why losing dissent is harmful, right? It, yes. it, you, you just talked about sort of the value of dissent and making certain ideas possible about kind of the, the, the I think, is the, the danger to the public of, of getting confused or a whiplash when they've been told with certainty X and then suddenly it reverses to Y, right? I mean, the public needs a calibration of of, of uncertainty, but there's also, I think the, the harm, you know, within any field of academic research that the sooner an idea gets politicized and the sooner therefore doubt kind of gets mm-hmm. diminished, it becomes impossible to actually do any research. So we think about the number of topics in COVID that you yes. basically couldn't study because yes. by the time you could study it, it was already
0: they a bad idea. Yeah, it was already, already poisoned. It. Yep. Right.
1: Right. Um, and I think you know, it's it's it, there's the formal issue of needing equipoise to do a trial, but even even just to write sort of a a more informal you know even to just voice a dissenting opinion right it we've already decided and i think one of the things about uncertainty is that you know in a funny way that you, we were talking about vaccines and all the people saying oh well, we don't know, we don't know what they right <laughs> it's funny that we sort of went from a climate i think very early in the pandemic with you and States of extreme certainty where we were certain yes we were certain john was wrong even though all he was saying was we need more know, data but he was you know, and, and the number of proclamations that said, we know X, we know Y will work, we're certain Z will work. Several of which, and we know this drug works, we know this drug doesn't work. <laughs> a number of which turned out, of course, to be wrong and then reversed. And so we went from like complete certainty in the way we talked about things. to now suddenly on the one thing where we actually have pretty good data, vaccines, we suddenly have convinced everyone that there's insane uncertainty about the vaccines and that they, you know, they might do nothing. The the first time where we suddenly you know, admit to a degree of uncertainty and where the press says, oh, science doesn't know. I know.
0: That's what science doesn't me. know. Science is doesn't, is on doesn't the know. Question. It's that's remarkable. What, exactly. That, that's the thesis of my essay tomorrow. The first time we say we don't know is we don't know vaccine slow transmission. Shut up. You do know. That's the one thing you know. The things you don't know is whether wearing right. the damn mask after the vaccine helps. Okay. But let me ask you, let me put this to you. This is my thesis. Let's see if you agree. My thesis if you are truly an intellectual, if you're actually an honest broker of ideas, you can never really be in a political party. Here's why. I identify on the political left because I believe in a lot of the things on the political left, but I have my own mind and I reach things myself. Here's the things that I disagree with them on. One, the US Food and Drug Administration drug approval. We can talk left, right, all we want. You put a Republican in office or a Democrat in office, the FDA is almost identical almost identical. Everyone can tell you whatever they want to say about Steve Hahn and Gottlieb and Califf and Margaret Hamburg. They are almost identical when it comes to further lowering the bar for approval. The next thing I'll say, conflict of interest. We railed about Trump's swamp, the conflicts of interest. I agree, I found it despicable. I don't think you should work for DuPont or chemical companies and then run the EPA. When our own guy does it for the Surgeon General, I'm dead silence dead silence, silence from people who were once critical. People told me they had the guts to look me in the eye and say, he's a good person, so it won't affect him. I say, you have learned nothing about conflict of interest. Damn it. The whole point is it doesn't matter how good you are. You are susceptible. Okay. The next thing, schools, we on the left, we screwed up schools to some degree. We may be beholden to teachers unions, but that is a screw up. I don't know what to say. This school's thing is going to haunt the left. It's going to be very hard to overcome. Okay. I'm the next thing I'll say that I disagree with the left a little bit on single payer. I actually support the idea of single payer. However, I think the reality is in this political environment, there will always be people dissatisfied with healthcare. And if you immediately move to a single payer, there is only one person to blame. So even if it is suboptimal to have a public option, I think it's better because somebody can switch choices. Sometimes if all you have is Comcast, you get very angry. If you have Comcast and a few other options, you spread your anger out amongst these people. Okay, and then the last thing I'd say where I disagree with the left very heartily. We have forgotten on the political left what this game is about. If you imagine being born somebody poor, somebody disadvantaged, a minority, imagine being born into that life. Right now, there are a number of obstacles you face in your life that somebody who's born into a higher income um, majority household, they do not face, okay? Instead of going to those problems and fixing it, Instead of doing that to make it better for that child, we on the political left spend inordinate amount of time looking at each other on social media for the person who used some phrase incorrectly and shaming them to get them fired. That's what we do. We don't we're not helping the people we're supposed to help. We have forgotten who are the people you're supposed to help. Does shaming and firing one person who works in some institution who I'd never fucking heard of a minute ago, is that helping this poor person born in in, in circumstances that you were not born in? We have forgotten on the left. So I think, you know, so my point is, one cannot be a part of the party. If one is really intellectually rigorous, one must look at one's party, that you agree with so much of the philosophy and say, you are all screwing this up. And every time you screw it up, you're giving the political opponents so much power because they will take your error and they will trick people into thinking that it means your whole, you know, vision of the world is wrong. Okay. Thoughts.
1: Well, so I guess the question to me is why, why can't you be in a party that you disagree with? And is it because at some point the party on something, and, and I think schools, I think for a lot of people is an issue where it's I, all of So it's, it's like, you know, we're, it's potentially going to be the greatest policy blunder of the pandemic. It, it is hurting some of the most vulnerable people exactly. in our society who can't speak up for themselves. And so at some point, right, you may just say, I, I can't be a part of this. Of course, you then also have to think, does the other part, you know, what's the alternative in a two party system? What's the alternative? Do we have do we have a real alternative? Can you participate? I mean, that's a broader conversation about our our political structure. But no, but I think there's a there's a certain, you know, I, I think it gets to this question of like, labeling and herds and how everything you've just articulated is actually completely sort of consistent with being left and being yeah, progressive and right. being liberal in fact you yeah. come to your views yes. because you are you know in part you know hopefully because you're informed and in reading the evidence but you are also coming to them through the lens of being progressive and having those values and i i felt the same way since you know since march of last year that a lot of my views are, you know, I think this has become a little less true, but it seemed politically unacceptable among my left peers, even what you know, I could, you know, say I'm more left than they are. I mean, I think in some cases yes. it's even true, yes. but like that that and my views weren't even about substantive we should do X or we shouldn't do Y. It was like we should hear both sides, we should have an open debate, we should okay. recognize which questions are within the ba- bounds of scientific expertise in which are, are actually a public policy trade-off that need to be considered more broadly. I mean, they were like not even sort of, I, I don't think they should have been controversial to anyone, but but because they so quickly became, right, everything became so polarized and so black and white, it's it's just deeply ironic that views that you would hold actually because, you like I held the views because I was concerned about sort of the systematic unfairnesses of lockdown and I was concerned that the way the New York Times was covering the lockdown through the at-home section, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. basically made lockdown seem like an extended weekend at the Hamptons, which it turns <laughs> out basically yeah. was what lockdown yeah. experience was for a set of political people. elites who supported it, and not that way for other people. And that that voice was not getting heard. And that like you know, that's a that's a set of views that I hold. I think both because they're the right views, but also that come out of a uh, out of some progressive convictions. And that and that quickly it felt like you sort of get rejected and you're no longer allowed to participate in progressive left discourse because you hold those views. I mean, I think that's just a a, a dangerous and destructive place that we're in right now. I mean, and I think it's particularly hard to think about how, you know, all of this is about how do you bring more nuance and complication and how do you bring the right level of dissent into the conversations? And, you know, I, it's a hard question. I, a colleague who I, who I deeply respect, and I, I think he's one of the smartest people I know, but he once said, uh, an academic can't ethically write an op-ed and can't ethically ever speak to the press because doing those things requires that you oversimplify. And it's our job not to oversimplify. And you always have to, you will never be allowed to make all of the points and engage all of the different counter arguments and engage all the sides in a, in a, short sound right. So therefore it is unethical as an academic can do it. And there's a part of me that says, yeah, I mean, he's actually like, he's right. And there's a part of me that says like, but that's crazy. I mean, there's, there's sort of no, like we also do need people to communicate in informed ways. We do need people to simplify. We do need people to enter these debates. And so the question is sort of how do you maintain the right level of nuance without, you know, going to either extreme where you either say, well, everything is sort of equal. You know, I, I'm not going to pick, pick any side or, you know, I'm only going to listen to my one strong. And we seem, we, we seem to have lost our ability to calibrate that level of, of nuance. And it's a hard, it's, it's, you know, it's, really hard problem.
0: I mean, that's a genius. I have not heard somebody say that, but I, I find it very apt. Um, I have shared that sentiment that in order to, you know, I guess I'll be honest with you. That's why I I've been asked a few times to appear on uh, these network TV, and I always say no, because I know I cannot go there and, and say it the way I want to say it. I just can't do it. They're going to cut me right. off, interrupt me. Um, in fact, what we're doing right now, this is creating a new media where we can, uh, we can permit ourselves to not dumb it down. At least at least, you know, you dumb it down to my level, but no dumber. Um, but 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 preserve nuance, at least as we would talk in, you know, I think this would be similar to if we had a beer together. Um, that's the level we're aiming at. And you know what? If people listen and they do not like the jargon, they don't comprehend. Well, you know, change the channel um uh you know uh, but but i but think but
1: the trade off of you know. course is that most yeah. most people are going to be more influenced by network news right i yeah. mean the trade off is that more public policy decisions are going to yes. be made i mean i agree you know i i i i feel the same way i entered academia because i wanted to to have this kind of conversation where i feel like i could say anything we could we could change our minds we could engage complicated mm-hmm. debates we're not trying to play gotcha but at the same time you think about you know wh- where are people getting there, you know How are views getting how is the average American forming their views about um, you know how to calibrate their behavior around COVID about whether to take the vaccine or or not, about you know, about whether schools are safe to return to. And you know, unfortunately, we we could prove them wrong with this uh, with this episode, but probably most of them are not gonna listen to this and use it to, to form their opinion, right? They're gonna watch MSNBC or Fox and they're getting a very distorted, you know lens in a very distorted picture. And I, you know, I, you know, I don't know. It's a tough challenge because part of me wants to say, well, and I never want to participate in that. And I don't, but like, on the other hand, someone's going to, and
0: that's how I feel about, I mean, um, well, let me put it to you this way. One of the problems on the left, it's, it links two of these things, which is, um, um, not wanting to debate, not wanting to speak to John Yonidi's That's in part motivated because people, I think, genuinely think that his views are harmful, but it's also in part motivated by a fear that he is not someone to be trifled with. He is a thoughtful person. You get yourself up on a stage against him and you start to say something like he's killing people. You might be surprised if he wins over the audience. You might be surprised if he makes you look like a fool because he is not someone to be trifled with. Uh, I'm not the best debater but I'm better than some. And I've been invited to many debates when the other person hears that I'm debating, they don't do it. Because you know what? In a live debate, I'm not half bad. Uh, especially, I can chop you down if you say anything that I think is not rigorous or proven by science. Okay, um, it's linked to the other thing I was talking about, which is people mm-hmm. want to be heard. They don't want to make themselves better. When you, if you have an internal compass that tells you you want to spend all your time on Twitter p- doing some foolishness, and not actually do this work behind the scenes of like writing a paper, getting it through peer review, trying to build a data set, trying to answer some questions. Um, uh, You don't develop the skill set to argue with a guy like John. And so then it's so much easier to have a new moral value that you can't talk to people who disagree with you because it spares you the embarrassment of having your ass handed to you. Um, So I think that that is, I mean, another tension in this space is um, I don't know what happened to liberalism, Liberalism to me never meant not aspiring to be excellent. Um, and I fear to some degree it it this it, it has it has lost some of that.
1: Yeah, no, and I think fear is right, but I think some of it, I mean, I think there's also it's like a fear, I think there's almost a deeper fear that like on some level people are uncertain about their own ideas and oh. they don't want to be confronted by that uncertainty, and they don't like the idea yeah. of uncertainty, yeah. and they think yeah. it's they think it's weak to be uncertain. And one yeah. of the things that John says a lot. And, and, you know, I, you could say maybe, you know, maybe it's just a little bit of a pose, but I, I, you know, he says it so much, like he says, I don't know all the time. These are things I don't know this. I can't answer this. I don't know. And I think a lot of people don't want to say that and then have formed a view that they, that they now (laughs) associate with a, once it becomes politicized, right. They associate it. It's personal, right. It becomes, it's part of their identity. It's part of their, you know, tribal mentality. It's part of a set of things that, and so like the idea of, finding out that you might be wrong, or there might be unexamined parts of that, or there might be some weaknesses in that is actually, I think, terrifying to people. It puts them on very shaky ground. I and mean, I think a lot of, I think that's true of a lot of, I mean, it's true of academics. And I think it's also, you know, I think a lot about the, the sort of the media side of things and how, right, it's great to say, well, everyone should listen to, you know, long podcasts and read lots of sources and, you know, read both sides and so on. And I, I wish they would. And I think it's like, fun. you know, I think it's fun to read. I think it's fun to engage with people. But um, but people also want certainty and i think a lot of media coverage is driven by the fact that that the, the media perceives that readers want like the certain truth and they want it, and they want it to be you know they both want it to be certain and they want it to be consistent with their political you know priors and and so you have a, a kind of a model for coverage that's like well, it's like the way the way models are covered as predictions, right? Models uh-huh. instead of being covered as models, which are useful or not useful for answering certain questions or not uh-huh. certain questions, are covered as like crystal balls that will uh-huh. tell you what will happen on X date. And it's, I mean, it can it's amazing that this can like it continues to be a feature of mainstream news coverage that we say if this happens, this number of people, uh-huh. this will happen. And and like a week later, it's already like wildly off the mark and we're still <laughs> doing it. But I think it feeds into a desire or a perceived desire of readers to not be confronted with a lot of uncertainty. People don't want to be told, we don't know about, you know, we don't know what the answer is here. We don't know, we don't have, we don't have the answer. There's, I think, a, a discomfort to that. And so there's a sort of selection towards people who are, you know, who are extremely overconfident. And then, and then you only want to hear things that confirm that opinion, because otherwise you might start to lose some, some of your sense of sense of certainty.
0: You were a reporter before you were a a law professor. I'm still recovering from it. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask about that. So, you know, um, when my vaccine thing came out there were a number of news articles that were writing about what people should do after vaccination um and i'll tell you i talked to a bunch of reporters they were scared to put my opinion in print. Now, of course, three weeks have changed. So it went from misinformation to from Fauci's lips to God, God's ears. Uh, <laughs> Saint, Saint Anthony of Fauci has spoken and God himself or herself has uh, has heard. Uh, but three weeks ago, it was securely in the misinformation column. Um, but I'll tell you, the reporters were very reluctant. And I told them, I told him, I'm not asking you to cover my opinion as if it's gospel, but I think people should hear that there is a range of opinions. And then I'll say another thing, um, when it comes to counseling people about what they can do after a vaccine, uh, not only do I have the experience of doing a lot of work with medical research, I literally worked on a bone marrow transplant floor for five years, where that is literally one of the most common questions people ask, which is after this thing that makes me vulnerable, what can I do with my loved ones? And the answer was never, live in a bubble and do nothing. That was not the answer. Um, uh, that was just not an acceptable option. It didn't make sense. Um, I also did a lot of back of the envelope calculation to get some estimate of risk. Um, so I, I would say it would be illogical for someone to say it's totally fine to wear a mask and go on a flight if they would say it's not okay to have a dinner party with two vaccinated people, um, an unvaccinated person on a flight, um, because the the risk is probably at least one order of magnitude, possibly two orders of magnitude higher on the flight. Um, so people are entering into this thing where just numerically they're, they're, they're having uh, internally inconsistent views. Okay. So I told these reporters, they wouldn't cover me. They wouldn't cover it. And when I read the papers, I, I didn't hate it, but I know it didn't push as hard as it could have pushed. It should have pushed. Um, why do you think this happens? Why, why are, why is journalism, um, uh, regression to the mean? Why is that happening?
1: Yeah, so this is a great, I mean, I I, I could spend hours, we won't spend hours, we could spend hours talking about this. Um, and maybe you should, have, I can suggest some journalists so you could have on and on. So I think this is a hard question. So I, like you said, I, you know, I was a reporter, I was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal for a few years before law school. And I think I, I want to start by saying that I, um, I don't envy the task that my friends and colleagues who are still journalists have, I think this is, I think covering COVID is, tough for a whole bunch of reasons so i, I want to acknowledge that there aren't easy answers so i think i mean there's, there's some of it as i think kind of the stuff everyone knows or says about media that like fear sells. having you know bright red warning maps all over your front page and having very negative framing and saying right, <laughs> saying how many people won't take uh-huh. the vaccine the the, the you know the, the 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 articles like back in june about how many americans wouldn't take the vaccine like long before they're was even a vaccine that had been approved, but saying it will never work. I mean, I think the negative framing, you know, that that sells, and and it's hard to also cover sort of nuance and detail. I think that like that stuff is true, but I actually think that's not the driver. I think, I think a lot of it is. I think it's exactly what you experienced in talking to the to the, these reporters. It's sort of, it's a good faith fear on their part that they're going to cover science like a tennis match and they're gonna sort of give voice to the wrong side. And I think it's a lesson that partly comes out of, or especially comes out of um, what the media learned from coverage of climate change. I think there's there's a sense, and I think this is something that people still talk about all the time, that climate change was covered as, an issue where mm. half the scientists thought one thing and half the scientists thought the other thing, because right. you would get one quote from someone who believed in climate change and one from someone right. who didn't believe in it. And right. it continued to be covered that way, de- like decades after right. there was extraordinary consensus on certain facts. And so like 30 years after there was consensus, you would still have the obligatory one-on-one quote. And I think a lot of people said, look, that's not how science works. And that's not really, fa- that's, you know, that's not yeah." right, if you're going to do that, you should have 99 quotes from scientists who support it, and then one from, like, not one-on-one. So the sphere of false balance. I think that the problem is that, and and I think on top of that, there's also a a sense that, like, we're in this wartime situation, and we should, like, do what the public health agencies are telling us to do. I think the problem, of course, as, as you know, is that COVID is not climate change, right? We don't have decades of research on it, and a lot of the questions are not, I think there's been this confusion of sort of what is and isn't a scientific question. Like questions about risk trade offs are usually actually not science questions, no, right? No, science no. can inform you about what the relative risk is. Science can tell you if you do X, I mean, maybe, right? Maybe studies can tell you if you do X, Y, and Z, here is some set of probabilistic estimates of what might happen. Right. Otherwise, here's what might happen, right? But how we as a society choose to prioritize those right. risks, how we choose to weigh trade offs, how we choose to decide what's important between schools and air travel and business and 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 socializing and so on are not scientific questions. They're, they're, you know, incredibly complicated, yeah, personal questions. And I think that, you know, somehow, I think the early coverage of the pandemic, I think this has continued, forgot that or didn't see that. And I think that's why we had, you know, I think about like what did the media truly get? wrong in, in early COVID coverage. And it's not necessarily even the science coverage, it's the absence of coverage of other trade-offs. It's like the fact well, yeah. that it took a really long time before anyone was willing to write about the the harms of having school closures or to write about yes. problems that working mothers would like that working mothers would drop well, out so of the first... job force or that they would have differential impacts on the rich and the poor and so on. It yes. took like months longer. That should have been like alongside, you know, the scientific coverage on day one, that should have yeah. been there. And, I, and it wasn't. And that, that I think, you know, with, with with love and respect for my friends in the media, I think that was a failure.
0: The first failure was from January to March, all they said was, flu is way worse than COVID, get your flu shot. <laughs> and then right. it was well, all- Well, and the- I think that sort yeah. of contributed. Yes. That, I think
1: there was like, a, I mean, I feel like there was a sense of guilt that people had about that. They were like, oh my God, we are, are at fault. We stopped the US from responding rationally, which I think was, you know, maybe, maybe they were, but like, whatever, you know, no one knew necessarily, like, I I think they overlearned from that. And they're like, well, from now on, we screwed that up. But from now on, we're just going to do what science says. But the problem is, you know, a science doesn't speak with one voice. There's not one science that can tell you X, Y, and Z. There are things that are probably outside the bounds of scientific consensus and things that are more in it. But like, we're not, you know, especially early in a novel thing, that bound is going to be pretty wide. Right. But the part that never made sense was was sort of forgetting the core competency of journalists to tell other stories of sort of harms from lockdown. Or a- another example of something where where I think journalists have just, I-, I think another way of thinking about the dissent issue is not even that it's like, in a story about vaccines, we need four quotes from people who think you should hug grandparents and four from people who think you sure. shouldn't. Sure. But it's also about trying to understand why people who are qualified and smart and in their domain of expertise and with cr- credentials and a track record have such different views. Right. And I feel like we never like coverage of the Great Barrington Declaration, like, and now, you know, again, we're gonna we're gonna lose 40 viewers here, but like the the if there are any left. Um, but <laughs> The, the question so rapidly became like, you know, what are their secret sources of funding and who's secretly behind this? Instead of saying, or, you know, is this right or wrong? But in a way, the, the, the interesting questions would have been, why are there some smart people who really think this? And that might have been a way, I can see the concern that you don't want to say something, you don't want to say, on the one hand, some people think this, on the other hand, others think this. If you're afraid of that, you could still write a story saying, here's why Ioannidis thinks the things he right. thinks. Here's how it's consistent with his career. Here's how he's come to it in good faith. People still think it's wrong, right? There are ways journalists can cover. I think of it sort of like coverage, like, if you, if you want to totally politicize it, it's like coverage after Trump won. The, the, there was the, the sense that why the media has sort of let us down yeah, yeah, yeah. by not figuring out you're right why people voted for him and that a core competency of the media is to go out and talk to people and get stories about what it is that led you to vote for Trump yeah. and you can do that story without endorsing Trump right i mean it's like it's it's such an obvious journalistic idea that you can go talk to a voter yeah. you can tell a nice story that humanizes them and allows people to understand it i mean this is sort of what someone like julia mark has did so well with yes, people like when talking. her articles talking about why yeah. people won't wear a mask yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than starting from the like their evil assumption she yeah, tried yeah. to figure out why and talked about it and that's, that's like that's good. the strength of journalists and it's like they've just chosen completely to not do that when it comes to scientific dissent. and that to me is the thing where i won't you know that the, the science and fear and nuance part that's hard but it's the the sort of Failing to do the core competencies of journalism that really sort of to, to tell those stories that I think really troubles me, and instead to do, to do the kind of life like here, are, you know, eight great things you can do at home in your vacation home in the pen. Here's what to do with your 14th room that you don't know what to do with. The <laughs> I, I mean, know. The, right? I think that's that's you know.
0: Uh huh. Oh, that's that's well put. I mean, here's what to do with that. Um, the little accessory dwelling unit you've added to your house, and right, right. a new a new recipe for mushrooms you grew in your own forest. Um, right? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I was thinking the only thing this whole pandemic that is as settled science as climate change has been that that mannequin study of double masking. <laughs> they they waited a, they waited a whole year a right. whole a whole year they waited to put two masks on that mannequin they waited you know uh, that is uh, is that gaslighting i mean i really wondered career making I mean, study yeah career they, i wondered why the hell is the first time I'm hearing about this damn double mask one year into this. And then I was like, well, surely it took a year for that multi-armed randomized trial they ran. And then I go and find that they just wrapped up (laughs) this rubber. There were shortages. The (laughs) the shortage on the double mask took them a whole damn year. I, (laughs) I mean, I don't know what to say. And it would be one thing if they just published it, but they press released it and they're on TV. Whew. All no,
1: right. and it's like, it's, yeah. I, I think, I mean, on the science, I said, I'd give you a free pass in science. I wouldn't on that either, because in a way, it's like watching all of the sort of worst warning signs of, of media coverage of science, the sort of like slow, like, you know, red wine extends your life by 30 years. <laughs> yes. A year later, you got red wine kills you. If you drink more than one glass a month, the next year, you got red wine actually prevents cancer. The next year, red wine causes cancer, right? The sort of like the amplification of one study to prove a point. And it's sort of like we've like the media knows better than to do that. And as I mean, people still do it, but like, I feel like a lot of the sort of major print outlets have gotten a lot better in the way they would do that. And it's like, they forgot all those lessons and now they're doing like, you know, sci- and, and not even caviating. We'll say like, science says you should wear 10 masks. And then you get like, you know, 50% down the story. And it's like, according to one preprint where we, you know, put two masks on a mannequin. And it's like, the headline is so disconnected from the the headline, which is science says, you know, here's what experts say. We talked to 45 experts and, you know, here are their tips for better hand washing. And there's just not a, a, like the unwillingness to kind of calibrate I mean, and I get that it's hard. There's a, there's a lot of information to consume, and the average reader doesn't want to know like what's the difference between a study and a preprint, and a, what's the difference between a randomized control trial and a model. Like they don't want to know that. But it is journalist's job to provide some degree of context, and I think there's really been a, I mean, there's been a deeply strong systematic bias towards, for instance, presenting modeling results, some of which don't even want to be presented as. I mean, the good ones never want to be presented as predictions, uh-huh. but yeah. presenting them as predictions rather than you know, and I get it's hard and you can't say in a newspaper article, a model is meant to help simplify reality. So you can understand it and but, think about yeah. assumptions, but, but if you're going to cover it, you can't say they science it on says the... X will happen tomorrow. And they put it Cause on that's fr- not what the front... science
0: said. Yeah. And they put it on the front of their, the masthead and then there's the model and it, and it, it changes the school's discussion was shaped by that January 24th model. It looked right. like, uh it looked like uh, uh bad right. things were coming that literally is changing our ability to get this thing moved. I, I don't know what to say. Um,
1: and that was wrong within a
0: week. It was. It was. Yeah. It was. Uh, I, I don't know. I how, within, yeah. How could it be wrong so quickly? That's what I wondered. I was like, how? How is it already wrong? How is it already? It was already wrong the time the print issue appeared on the on the front porch. I I don't know what to say. Um. Yeah. It's a And then when
1: we have had randomized control trials, I feel like they've been reported very, like very modestly. I mean, some of the early drug just <laughs> disc- like it was just there was no. I mean, you've talked about this quite a bit, or even the coverage. Of, I mean the uh, I, I dare not talk about the coverage of the Danish mass study, but oh, like I either know. don't like it was covered in such a silly They're way. like it was
0: according like, to this. Don't, it, you don't have to study, cover it, but yeah. if you're going to
1: cover it, don't put a headline that says the opposite of what it says. On like it was just a very bizarre Jacob, you know mode of 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 coverage that I think
0: yeah. I had to laugh when I mean. There are a few people who I I don't fully agree with, but they're a little too critical of masks. Um, But um, this one person said, um, you know, a 6,000 person randomized trial finds masks, no benefits. And they're like, media, um, this is a flawed study, very inconclusive, can't draw conclusions, you know, don't put too much stock in Danish mask study. Um, It would have worked if they had done this. And then it was like, one rubber mannequin study shows two masks health. This is science says, <laughs> science says rubber mannequin study shows two masks. I was like, what right. is going on? There's got to be some consistency. Okay. Um, well, I'll give you the last word. I enjoyed Yeah. Our no, discussion. It's an
1: extreme <laughs> miscalibration of the level of evidence. Yeah.
0: Same with the pregnant women. I mean- uh, Sorry, I missed we, that. No, no, sorry. <laughs> I, I guess I'd say this, the same with the pregnant women. We know more. There is more data right now that masks slow the spread than that vaccination, sorry, there's more data right now that vaccination slows the spread than whether or not the safety benefit profile is favorable in pregnant women. That's why the WHO currently, they used to advise against it. Now they do not advise for it. They've softened their recommendation. This is where we are right now. And yet the same person who will push back saying, we do not know for sure that vaccine slows spread will also advocate that a pregnant woman get vaccinated with lesser evidence. that is, uh, first, I think it's a it's a departure from prior um, philosophies of medicine where we were very reluctant to do those things to pregnant women, to give them any intervention until we had very strong safety data. Um, it, it shows, to me, the lesson is that it, it reflects a view of the world that puts virus-related outcomes above all else. The virus is bad, ergo, we don't know, it's, it stops spread. The virus is bad, ergo, it's probably beneficial for pregnant women to get this. Okay, I'll give you the last thoughts. Um, this is a really these are always my favorite discussions because, you know, you're one of the few people who's interested where I'm interested, which is, you know, there's a the science yawn that ma- the mannequin study bores me. But then there's this the sociology around science. And that's what really, really, I love. I love to think about um, at least it's something something to stay occupied with. So I'll give you the last word. Thanks for doing this.
1: Yeah, thanks. No, I think I think this, you've, you've hit on a lot of the. Um, Uh, you know, things I I agree completely. You've hit on a lot of things that interest me. I think that the way we treat evidence and expertise is just so inconsistent. And I think when you say things like that, people often get this idea that you're anti-expertise. But actually, you know, I think all of the 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 things we're talking about are thinking about the proper functioning of expertise is entirely pro-expertise, right? You can't you can't be in favor of expertise if you don't think about how to use it carefully, how to calibrate levels of uncertainty correctly, about how to deal with trade-offs when you don't have, like how do you throw it to the public or or what do you say to the public when you don't have evidence on something, right? right? Half the time we say absence of evidence is evidence of absence, <laughs> half we say
0: it's not, yeah,
1: right? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, right. But like actually we need sort of better ways of, of communicating yeah. and and thinking about that. And, and in particular, the one I think that disturbs me the most is sort of thinking about what areas expertise can inform on, which are many, but also what areas it can inform on but can't decide and what are sort of trade-offs like the, the thing that sort of terrifies me most about kind of you know language like defer to science or just trust the experts it's not just that it, it just kind of makes a hash out of what expertise is because expertise is not some monolithic thing that can do that but also that it really hollows out and, and narrows the public sphere and narrows the notion of, of public trade-offs and the fact that these policy issues are actually collective issues that require some degree of 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 kind of control or authority from all of us, that everyone should be weighing in on them because questions about how we prioritize young people and how we think about risk and how we think about what acceptable levels of risk are and how we think about the importance of families or socializing or the importance of community life or even the importance of seeing other people's faces, which is something that kind of got knocked us off bounds but is actually kind of part of human life and is not, right? Like these are questions that are not, not purely questions of expertise. And I think it's it's both that we're, the way we're sort of cavalierly referring to expertise, both hollows out the role of being an expert. It, it, it makes us into imposters and it hollows out sort of the public's view or ability to kind of participate in these really important
0: questions. Jacob Russell, thank you so much for doing this. And folks who like this should check out the podcast and uh, support us on Patreon and uh, listen to us on iTunes. Thanks, Jacob.
1: Thank you, it's great.
0: You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at Plenary Session. Until next time.